0: Have you been searching for the best ticket deals around? Well, look no further. With TickFlix, the price you see is the price you pay, and Tixflix just happens to have over six billion dollars in ticket inventory just waiting for you. They absolutely mean it when they say every ticket, every venue, everywhere. And you can save even more with promo code PULSE in all caps to save you five percent off your total purchase. Just go to TixFlix.com and click the search bar. Search events based on your geographic location. Pick the show you want, and bam, it's showtime. Sporting events, Broadway shows, concerts, and more with TixFlix.com. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for the email newsletter so you can stay up to date on the latest news and savings with TixFlix. That's TixFlix.com. T-I-X-D-L-I-T-Z.com. Every ticket, every venue, everywhere.
1: What's going on, everybody? This is... As always, your co-host of the Nets Pulse Podcast as part of the Pulse Podcast Network, Brett the beekeeper, Garofalo, sitting here with Carl the Talent Jackson. And we are looking at each other face-to-face for the first time while we're recording. This is a very monumental moment for the Nets Pulse Podcast. So, Carl, I'm reading your body language right now, looking, gazing into those beautiful blue eyes, looking at that time-tested, age-old Yukon Huskies Hoodie, how are you doing?
0: Brett, I am wondering if the director's cut version of the Nets Hawks game has Vince Carter making that three because that just seemed like a storybook ending that the producers would have said, Nope, we gotta change it. But you know what? I'll take it. We wanna oh, go man. we wanna go in there and miss twenty one free throws and still walk away with a two point win that should have been a twenty point win to win, take the money, run. Don't look back. You
1: know know it's a tough game when I am physically cringing (laughs) when you're mentioning all of these things. It would have been so poetic. I don't don't know if you remember there was a game. I don't remember what year it was. I think. I think it was 2007. But Vince Carter hit a very, very similar three against the Al Horford era Hawks to win the game from almost the exact same spot. He was a bit more open and it was off the dribble. It would have been Coming full circle, closing the loop if he had hit that three. So I had all of that in my mind as that shot went up.
0: Just like throwing a boomerang and having it come back and hit you right in the beans.
1: We're going to do a future podcast on how Vince Carter's best years came with the Nets and provide tons of statistical evidence. I know you and I didn't discuss this before, but we're doing it now that it's on air, so you can't say no.
0: I believe I saw it in your notes that that you uh, posted from this week at the Hyatt Bar, so I am well-versed and ready to rock.
1: (laughs) I'd like to point out that I wrote most of the notes for this podcast running on about three hours of sleep at 11 p.m. at the San Francisco International Airport, so I, I couldn't be more excited to kick this one off.
0: So all right, so let's jump right in. So um, we are, as we as we mentioned, you know, we're recording this Saturday night uh, into Sunday morning, uh, perhaps uh, late night, getting getting real, getting real saucy uh, on the pod. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about um, things that we like and don't like in in general, but but also pertaining to the Atlanta game. And then uh, we're going to do a little bit of a deep dive into rebounding. Uh, we've got a pivotal game coming up on Monday. March 11th against the Detroit Pistons. And uh, Andre Drummond was the subject of a very interesting article on Cleaning the Glass about uh, rebounding and and the different components that go into rebounding. So we wanted to do a little bit of a deep dive there. We think that that's going to be a major focus area for the Nets in terms of trying to keep him off the glass. So um, that's what we're going to talk about. Brett, why don't you tell me some things that you like or don't like?
1: Spoiler alert, one of the last things that I don't like is how good the Pistons have been playing, but we'll get to that. (laughs) Uh, Let's start off with some positives, Carl. One thing that I noticed recently that I love about being a Nets fan, watching Nets games, and being part of this season is not only Richard Jefferson's announcing, but Richard Jefferson using his announcing as a platform to rewrite NBA history before our very eyes. And his own personal history, too. One, There was a Mavs dunk when he was on the Mavs. I forget what player. He skied, destroyed this person, and it was called a foul. According to him, that was not called a foul. They even replayed it during the game when he and I were talking. Number two, he also tried to make the claim that he was once traded for Dwayne Wade when that was clearly not (laughs) the case. He was traded to clear cap space for Dwayne Wade at one point when a team thought they were going to get him. It's just, it's so much fun to listen to this guy banter back and forth with Iron Eagle and use it to push his own revisionist history NBA politics to try to make himself look better. I, I'm, I'm so much enjoying the Richard Jefferson era. It's going to be very, very sad when ESPN or TNT picks
0: him up. Honestly, the the Iron Eagle, Richard Jefferson uh chemistry is just fantastic because i mean it's like listening to richard jefferson just doing a stand-up routine and there and you know you hear some sneakers squeaking in the background like like you know he's not necessarily on point i mean i mean his actual analysis is good don't get me wrong i'm not taking away from it but he is uh you know he he is a volume humorist and, and I don't mean that in any kind of negative way, but like, you know, he's, he's getting numbers in the humor department because he's putting up the shots and um, you know, he does a great job with it. And, and he, I mean, Ian is unflappable, but you know, also hilarious himself, but like also like, slightly uncomfortable with the way that richard is treating it at all times that it really really works out so uh i can't say enough about the pairing of the two of them and and they've referenced it a couple times since but the joke from earlier in the season about uh richard saying that he would prefer to be called an african-american commentator rather than a color commentator is top five i mean it's right up there with kevin harlan uh announcing the drunk streaker uh, on monday night football a couple years ago
1: how far above it ranked is, is it above Marv Albert mispronouncing every white person's name in the NBA?
0: Oh, I mean, I think that there's, a, there, there just, there need to be a different, there needs to be a different category for, uh, intentional, com- or, or uh, actual unintentional comedy and sort of intentional, unintentional comedy. Uh, cause you know, RJ and I, and it's like, you know, we're pushing the boundaries. We're making each other uncomfortable, but we're doing it on purpose and it's, and it's a lot funnier and everybody's kind of laughing and, You know, Marv Albert is, it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, Marv Albert, Marv Albert's announcing at this point looks about as good as his toupee and his toupee don't look very good.
1: There's nothing funny about dementia, Carl. Um, That's true. I
0: mean, well, that's, that's, that's exactly right. Right. Like it just, it's, it's not funny. It feels awkward and bad. And then you remember like his whole thing about biting hookers and that's also weird.
1: Yeah, that's true. You can't not think about it.
0: I mean, and I feel like I can, but then like every now and again, I'm like, oh, hey, hmm, I wonder if that happened in the modern era. I don't think he would have, I don't think he would still be announcing games, but I could be wrong. Well,
1: here's a question. Are we going to have an R. Kelly-esque revival of the Marv Albert saga? Is that going to come back into the public light? Or at this point, is it just not worth it because he's slipping slowly into insanity before our very eyes?
0: You know, I don't know. I don't really remember the exact details of it uh, to know if it's going to get re relitigated in the, in the public public sphere. But I, I don't. I, I don't know. I, I'm not actually going to touch. Carl, that. don't
1: worry, I've got you. I'm googling Marv Albert hooker biting as we speak. <laughs> I'm already flagged by the FBI, so we'll
0: <laughs> be fine. Great. It's oh, awesome re- retargeted ads. So, um, how about some things that I like? Uh, <laughs> I'm going to go for two here. While, while, while we're while we're getting after it, and then then we could do yours. Um, so, number one, um, something that we talked about, something that I bought into, um, which was uh, you know Rodion's Karuk's. We thought he was going to be on that wall. We needed him to be off that wall, and he has not. He has bounced back from the rookie wall in a big way um, between yamming it on Alex Len tonight. Um, and I, I don't actually have his box score line in front of me, but at one point he was four for five from beyond the arc, um, which is just absolute peaches and gravy for the day. Yeah, that was, that was his finishing, that oh, was wow. his finishing line. So that, I mean, that's fantastic. And I think he's really keyed the energy, uh, you know, you know, coming back. So that really kind of puts that four discussion to bed and, You know, I got it. You got to hand it to Nets Twitter as well, because they they had been advocating for this coming out of the All-Star break, you know, pretty intensely. And I think you and I were a little bit more measured in our responses and trying to be a little bit more analytical. And you know what? Hats off. You guys got it. We're we're wrong. So that's that is one thing. And then my other thing, and I'll let you respond to both at the same time, is been the play of Damari Carroll, um, where, you know, I think there was an article uh, written recently I think it was Brian Lewis that had it but you know talking about how you know Damari came to this team as part of a salary dump and um, you know was really I mean essentially I mean that trade is going to go down in history in terms of getting us two full years of Damari Carroll uh, plus the picks that became Rodion's Karuk's and Gian and Musa and frankly if Janet Musa turns into any type of asset uh, it's an amazing deal um it, you know he, he is really a fantastic contributor to this team he's somebody whose positional versatility I think makes him really valuable and honestly Brett I'm kind of worried as we go into the offseason about how they're going to replace his production I mean obviously if you if you sign Kawhi Leonard or something like that maybe it's a moot point but like he's going to be a tough guy to replace for the Nets if, if they don't pull in somebody at a at a very high level
1: there are so many things to respond to there, and I will say that sporadically having a stretch four is way better than having whatever the exact opposite of a stretch four is, and watching Kurook's throw up threes with confidence during his tough stretch and finally getting to a point where they are getting in and he can't have nights where he's hitting four or five threes at a high percentage has been awesome to watch. He's gone through a very, very tough mental stretch for himself, with confidence, with poise, come out on the other end, even quote-unquote losing his starting job or losing the starters' minutes for a bit and coming back. One of of the things that I wrote that I liked was confidence and that plays right into it. I am going to greatly miss Damare. I think it's... If he comes back, it's going to be... Him taking a discount due to his relationship with Kenny, due to the Nets organization reviving his career and getting him back to a point where he was worth something to teams. Like you said, we are definitely going to be doing a Damari Carroll appreciation pod at some point. Probably before the Vince Carter retirement pod because he's never going to retire. And it's going to involve things like him taking D'Angelo Russell under his wing, him being the sneakiest, best free throw drawer on the team, besides perhaps Spencer. I'm the only one on the team that can consistently get to the rim, Dinwiddie. Uh, Damari is a pleasure to have on the team. He always seems to get to the line in key moments, he always seems to be hitting big threes for us. And you can plug him in with any lineup, and he's able to succeed as either the primary ball handler in short stints or somebody that stands in the corner and doesn't need the ball and doesn't need looks to stay engaged.
0: So the Damari Carroll appreciation pod might have to be our first uh, foray into multimedia where the second half of it is just going to be you and I going through a PowerPoint of Damari Carroll's, like, bench outfits, um, and it's going to be a lot of fun. You're going to want to be there for that. Um, So I have one more uh quick one and then uh you know send it send it back to you for or we want to transition into rebounding but uh, my last one is uh so i will preface this by saying that i thought that the atlanta game was one of the most oddly officiated and, and i would say poorly officiated games that i've seen in a while um but 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 one that i thought was relatively you know fairly poorly officiated on both sides like i don't think you know the nets obviously shot you know Seventeen thousand additional free throws, and you know, uh, compensated by missing sixteen thousand and fifty of them. But um, my thing is Spencer Dinwiddie's politicking with the officials because I there, I heard um, er, much earlier in the season I heard Chris Herring, uh, who's a great writer from Five Thirty Eight was on um, the Low Post, and and he was saying like I've never seen somebody complain the way that Dinwiddie does, but. Chris Herring was also the author of the article last year that was talking about how the Nets got robbed in crunch time the most. And I do think that, that Dinwiddie, you know, first of all, he's a playthrough contact point guard for sure. I mean, he's he's always looking to get fouled. And second of all, like, you know, I, I do think he gets bumped a lot in a, in, in a way that, like, it seems like other people would get the call sometimes. But, like, do you feel like the way that he addresses the officials is as effective as it could be if maybe he was – Doing it in a slightly different way?
1: I, I would compare him to players like a Demarcus Cousins or an Andre Drummond or even a Ben Simmons that are getting fouled harder on every single drive or touch near the rim. Those guys don't react like the ref took their entire family, brought them into their basement, shot them, and sent them the video. It, 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 like it really. I, he looks exasperated. He. It's, it's an overreaction each time. Now, he, there are some bad foul calls against him, but he needs to find a way to cool it. There's not sort of cons- some sort of conspiracy theory against Spencer Dinwiddie. This isn't the league versus him. This isn't uh, people not giving him respect as a star player. Sometimes you just don't get calls or, hey, you didn't get fouled. Now, did he have a, a lot of gripes last season? Does he have a lot of gripes this season? Yes, but it doesn't seem like complaining like that after the calls is working. So just stop it.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think he he does you know maybe a fairly decent job like a beat or two after a play of like you know discussing things with the officials. That seems like it's maybe productive. But like I mean, there was a play in the Hawks game where you know he went up, he he got bumped by Trey Young, although I think he clearly initiated the contact, and you know you could, you certainly could have called a foul there. There were certainly other plays that were more egregiously not called in that game, and and you know he kind of went after the official rather than trying to grab the rebound or trying to get back on defense. And I think those, those are the moments where, you know, I'm not trying to tell anybody how to, you know, to manage their emotions or anything like that. Like, I understand these guys are emotional. I appreciate them pouring their heart and soul into everything that they do. But, like, you know, at some point it's like, hey, you know, keep your let's keep our eye on the ball there, bud.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more. It's, it's frustrating as a fan to watch, too, because you know that it's not really getting us anything. And I don't know if he's going to get into that LeBron James territory of every single shot that he misses is the fault of the defender making some sort of legal contact with him. But I am a little bit worried about getting to that point because he does claim to be the best player on the floor.
0: Yeah, and and, and frankly, makes an argument, I mean, I, I don't 100% know. I mean, I... I i think we could have that discussion but but he makes an argument for it with his play a lot of the time like you know and 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 good for him like like you know he, he deserves to be in that conversation and i'm excited that he's playing well enough to be in that conversation and i'm glad that he draws contact and i'm glad that he finishes through contact and and i'm glad that he goes to the line but it's like sometimes it's like you know i i think just just kind of finding that that balance between um you know playing through contact versus initiating contact on every play and and trying to have that be the end goal.
1: yeah maybe Alan Iverson is right. I ain't seen no franchise player come off the bench.
0: <laughs> well, I don't know if that's uh well, I mean, there's lots to unpack there. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I was wondering if you could take that one and run with it, but we will move on knowing how much we have to get to. I will will mention one more thing that I like, and then we will go into our pre-planned transition. Guys, guess what we actually do think about these things beforehand, contrary to popular belief or how disjointed they are during the podcast. But one thing that I love as of recent is the Nets guards, ball handlers seem to be remembering that Jared Allen exists as a tool on offense. They're actually giving him the ball down low, especially in crunch time. He's an amazing release valve. He's got those pump fakes. He's got those little push shots from – five to seven feet out that he can get to go. And he's a good enough free throw shooter that he's not an Ed Davis liability at the line down the stretch. And it just seems like some of these guards, even the ones that are great at getting to the rim and aren't in frantic mode once they get past the first defender, seem to forget that he's there a ton of times they are looking to pass it out to shooters in the corner, Joe Harris, Alan Crabb on the wing, versus a simple dump off to Jared, which almost always leads to some sort of points albeit a one point from a one of two from the line because he gets wrapped up by three players, or he finds a way to get an end one laid in, or he puts back his own miss. We need to remember that he's there, and it seems like we're doing that at the end of the game, so it seems to be loosening things up and opening more options for the Nets.
0: Yeah, and I think he's gotten a lot better at you know catching and, and, and finishing in transition. Um, I think I agree with you about you know your comments on him at the line, although tonight notwithstanding because tonight although everybody was kind of bit by the bug tonight i don't know i don't know what happened um but it was it was roof stoof
1: on this podcast we avoid hot takes carl so i'm trying to take the season as a whole here versus react to the abysmal free throw performance from tonight but that was really really tough to watch i don't think
0: it's a hot take to say that missing 21 free throws sucked (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's that's tepid at best we got
1: the dub, baby. <laughs> <laughs> oh, winning hides all stands. <laughs> uh, yeah.
0: yeah.
1: Oh God. Um, well, anyway, we'll uh, we'll end on something that I don't like, which is very, very pertinent to the second half of this podcast and to the Nets' upcoming schedule. On three eleven, and uh, in hashtag investigate three eleven. The Nets are set to play the Detroit Pistons who are playing out of their minds right now. I am incredibly worried about this game. The Pistons are heating up at just the right time. They have the right mentality, to start with Blake Griffin, that's done a lot of things in a tougher conference before keeping everybody uh, in check. Somebody that's better than Reggie Jackson, so he doesn't have to take on the mantle of best player on the team when he's clearly struggling, coming back from injury, Uh, doesn't have to mentally take on that burden. They're playing great. I'm worried about it. I don't
0: like it. Carl? <laughs> <laughs> uh, <I> transition, <laughs> so, transition, Brett. So first of all, I'm kicking myself for, for not making a 311 the band joke. Amber is the color of your energy. But um, so, okay. So we wanted to talk about rebounding specifically. And, and I think we wanted to talk about the difficulty that the Nets have had I think against some opponents that that you know rebound particularly well I think you know the the example that immediately springs to mind for me was the Portland game where the Nets played relatively well and you know Enos Kanter just could not be stopped on the interior glass and I, I think it was I don't have a stat in front of me but it was like a 48 or a 52 offensive rebound percentage for the, the Blazers which is just patently insane And uh, as fate would have it, uh, last week, CleaningTheGlass.com and Ben Falk uh, released a really interesting article um, talking about rebounding specifically. And and I will paraphrase and summarize just really quickly, um, where, you know, basically what Ben was talking about is that when we look at rebounding, I mean, first of all, and this is just me, like, you know, when you're looking at a rebounding box score, like, you shouldn't look at rebound totals, you should look at rebound percentage because, uh, percentage doesn't penalize the team for making shots essentially um so so you know that's just a good way to, to, to think about it because really it's about you know how often are you able to grab the ball after a missed shot whether you're on offense or defense um and ben falk was saying that you know rebounding should be broken down into separate skills between offensive and defensive rebounding because um, they're not the same thing and you know People don't have the same numbers, and and the example he uses is Andre Drummond, who is one of the best offensive rebounders in the league, um, but is somebody whose on-off splits with defensive rebounds have actually often been negative. And he mentioned that you know on-off splits are a little bit precarious to use because it depends a lot on. You know, who your backup is and, and, you know, how they are relative to the other team's backups and teams with stronger benches can have, you know, more watered down and things like that, blah, blah, blah. But really, his main point was looking at, you know, not just the offense defense splits, but, but also kind of separating it into and looking at box, box outs. And this is something that you and I have talked about a lot with, uh, especially in the years. You know, with Brooke Lopez on the team is like, I would almost take kind of Ben Fox analysis a step further and say that, you know, rebounds, whether offense or defense or combined are not a skill, they're an output and they're made up of sub skills, which are box, you know, boxing out, going and getting the ball, tracking the ball and, and, and you know, actually possessing it. And, and I think that, um, you know, t- to simplify it a little bit, it's, it's really Boxing out is one thing and, and grabbing the ball is the other. Um, it's impacted by those skills. It's also impacted by strategy. I mean, I think, you know, we see a lot with teams that want to prevent other teams from getting out in transition that, you know, they're just not going to crash the offensive glass. Some teams are just not used to it. I think for the Nets in particular, playing zone, I think, impacts the way that they're able to box out. Um you know, but, but I think it's important to, to look at it at, at both of those skills. Um, and he mentioned that on stats.nba.com, you can actually track box out stats. So I went in there and I took a look at some folks for the Nets when, when we look at box outs because my thought is the Nets are just not a very good rebounding team, it's not a priority of theirs. Um, you know they, they generally tend to play small or perimeter ori- perimeter oriented which means they're just not going to have a lot of guys inside they don't really I mean ed Davis aside they don't really have anybody that's you know, a traditional interior banger that you know it's it sort of seems like with both rebounds and defense Kenny Atkinson's plan sometimes is just length like we're just going to throw as many long guys out there and you know they'll be taller or longer limbed so Brett if I were to ask you so if I were to look at the per 48 minute numbers for box outs and we'll apply a, a minutes minimum of like 500 just to filter out the you know guys that have been in how far down that list would I need to scroll to find a Brooklyn net
1: So this is number of box outs per 48 minutes. Yes. I'm going to say 30 players.
0: And who do you think the top net is?
1: God, I really want to say Ed Davis, but I feel like you're setting setting this up for it not to be Ed Davis, but I'm not going to overthink it. Just going with Ed Davis. I'm so, okay with that being wrong.
0: So Ed Davis is right. 30 is wrong. Damn. Ed Davis is first in the hey. league in boxing out in box outs, offensive box outs, defensive box outs, team rebounds on box outs, and player rebounds on box outs. Um, he is substantially ahead of Jared Allen in all of those metrics, who is usually second for those, but um, like occasionally it'll be Rondé. There, there are also uh, – when you, when you start getting into some of the percentages or, like, effectiveness of the individual's box outs, then the guards start to, to come into play a little bit more sort of across the league. Um, so so that's one thing. Um the, the other thing, the, the interesting thing that I thought, which uh, which I did see, was the one thing that Jared Allen does beat Ed Davis in are the percentage of team rebounds when that particular player boxes out. So not the number of, of, of team rebounds, but every time Jared Allen boxes out, the team does a better job of getting a rebound, than they do when Ed Davis boxes out. And I think part of that's due to volume, just because I think Ed Davis is boxing out more often than Jared Allen. And part of that is due, I think, to the fact that the Nets play zone so often with Allen, and that, you know, Kenny Atkinson feels like they rebound better out of zone, which I think reinforces my belief that they're just not a great rebounding team. Um, and, And the zone sort of helps them because it forces more sort of longer rebounds they're forcing longer shots and it it allows them to kind of use their sort of go get the ball skills instead of their boxing out to getting good position and and rebound skills
1: it could be the players that are on the floor with ed and jared when they're making all these box sets as well because they're not playing together and i'm trying to think of who typically shares the floor with a uh, jared allen i mean most recently kuroks whereas when ed davis is in the game who who's our typical forward to carroll he's not going to be as good of a rebounder as somebody like a kuroks is it's a that, that's just speculation i don't have the stats stats in front of me but that's something else that could affect it
0: yeah i yeah. know that that's a really good point and i think that the I mean, I think the other caveat with box outs in general is like it's it's an imperfect stat to track just because like if you're tracking sort of player motion, like if you're standing in front of somebody but you're not really actively doing anything, like, you know, are we counting that as a box out? Like, um, you know, how how exactly is that? You know, does does that work? And and that was something that was mentioned in the article as well.
1: At least they're trying. I I, I would say one of the toughest parts about tracking whether or not you are helping your team win by your efforts on the defensive glass is exactly that because good team boxing out takes a very very quick mindset shift and you have to keep up the same intensity that you just had on the defensive end which is also pretty tough too players are always looking for times to take a little bit of a break because you can't go 100 miles per hour out there so you're standing out there on defense your job is to try to move around screen stay with your man do everything in your power to stay between him and the basket or keep him from getting enough separation from you to get an open shot. The second that shot goes up, if you're a good rebounder, you automatically have to change your mindset to looking at the basket keeping your body on your man, making sure they don't go anywhere near it. The second that ball hits the basket, is it, do I go after it? Do I just stay here and keep my guy as far away from it as possible? Is there somebody sneaking around me that a player might've missed? Do I need to tap this to somebody else? The switch is tough. And I think that's one of the reasons that a lot of players aren't great rebounders or a lot of teams struggle in that because you need to keep up the intensity after maybe playing, Defense for twenty four seconds, you're exhausted, and your mentality, your mindset, and even your body position, has to switch in an instant. And it's tough to keep that up when you're exhausted over a thirty six minute period. If you're looking at average NBA minutes for starters,
0: yeah, and I think particularly also, you know, another complicating factor for a team like the Nets that that likes to run and likes to get out and transition and tries to get out and transition sort of with everybody on the floor is like, you know, y- you really need to make a split second decision to decide, like, okay, do we have to swarm to the ball? You know, uh, after this shot, or am I, you know, trying to leak out and, and get out? And that's and that's not only, you know, where am I? Where's the ball? It's also who's near the ball? Do I trust that they're going to get the rebound? Do I think it's the the carom is going to come too far, etc. Yeah. Let me okay. let me let me just throw a quick timeout here because my computer's about to die. So I'm going to run and get my cord, uh, and All we'll good. just leave the slack in here, and then we'll just cut it out when in anchor. Yeah, sounds I good. Man. Sorry. Okay. good.
1: to 20 on this one, and then you're up, Keeler. Um, and then depending on timing, too, my sister's downtown, so maybe we can beat her out or something. Show you some of the crazy nightlife. I don't know. There's got to be something. sand.
0: All right, sorry about that.
1: No, dude, it's fine. Um, do you
0: remember what we were talking about?
1: Well, no. Do you want me to start with a? Because I was gonna go into a question. Yeah, go for it. Okay, so my okay, I might as well just ask it.
0: So we'll cut to come back now.
1: I've I've got a question. Do you think that? the NBA will ever update or revise the traditional box score to reflect individual stats that better correlate to winning. And this conversation is a good prompt to that because tracking rebounds, splitting that up into offensive and defensive rebounds, isn't necessarily tracking how much a player is contributing to overall team success and to winning. So, and, go ahead.
0: Oh, no, sorry. Finish your thought.
1: But I, I, well, I was just thinking about this because, you know, players, the, DeAndre Jordan's a good example of this. And I think right now that players are very driven by box stat scores because historically that has what has gotten them paid. So if you look at somebody like, uh, DeAndre popcorn stats Jordan getting $24 million this year to effectively steal uncontested rebounds from players like Luka Doncic when, no, Doncic when nobody else is around them. I, those are the players that are getting paid or, or almost like an Andre Drummond that is grabbing a lot of defensive rebounds that might not necessarily be valuable to their team. it doesn't seem like either the contracts or the respect from the fans matches up with the players that grab the most rebounds. Case in point was an article The Ringer wrote about Ed Davis earlier this year, and they were trying to figure out how how do we determine who the most underrated players in the league are? And they had this great metric that said, who are the players that have the most win shares per 48 minutes that achieve a certain amount of minutes per game? So it wasn't like somebody was getting too Two minutes a game and somehow it had an insane stat because they hit a bunch of threes versus the amount of social media clicks or Google Googling go, that they get for their own name. And Ed Davis was number one on that list. He was the person that, had, that contributed the most to winning according to a bunch of catch-all metrics that had the least amount of Google searches for his name. And, that's, and that, that got me thinking that he, I think he contributes to winning more than somebody like a DeAndre Jordan does nowadays We will never see a player like Ed Davis given how certain things are valued get a better contract or more recognition. Now that, that could be a sizzling, blazing hot take but I truly believe that. I would rather have Ed Davis than DeAndre Jordan on my team
0: So that's So Okay, so, so to walk that one back for a second too, like, I think there's two pieces of it, right? There's do we think that we'll adjust box scores to winning? And I have a couple thoughts there. Let me start with sort of the second half of it in terms of underrated, overrated, and contributing to winning versus like kind of popcorn stats. I mean, uh, answered a little bit indirectly, like I have always felt with rebounding, and a lot of this was based on watching Brook Lopez play, um, that, you know, rebounding in particular... I think is really has this really profound like narrative value to the way that we understand players and we understand basketball. It's it's really connected with hustle and effort. And like, you know, I, I feel like people, like people would talk about Brooke Lopez being, you know, seven feet tall and grabbing fewer rebounds as, as like a character flaw instead of like, you know, just, just a different sort of, a portioning of his skills. And, and I think that the reason to kind of connect it back to the box score thing, like the thing about the box score thing that that's interesting is it depends a little bit on what your strategy is, right? Like, I think that, you know, Andre Drummond pounding the offensive glass is really important to what the Pistons are trying to do. Right? Like, I mean, I think that's part of what makes them a really good team. I think that, you know, other teams that want to get back in transition pounding the offensive glass just isn't part of what they're trying to do. Right. You know, like and I think the Nets are probably a good example. Like part of the reason that Jared Allen probably doesn't get as many rebounds as, as he could is number one, he's playing away from the basket on offense and number two, you know, he's anchoring a zone defense a lot of the time on the other end, or if he's not anchoring his own defense, they want him to drop back into you know, into coverage on defense. And, and so, you know, he needs to be, to be leaking out and, and running backwards as soon as a shot's going off. So, you know, there, there's that strategic element as well. Um, but, you know, I've, I've always, I find rebounds to be like one of the more controversial is the wrong word, but like one of the more, I guess, like strategy dependent statistics in basketball um, where, you know, they can have immense value to certain teams and they can have less value to certain teams. And I think particularly, even as you filter sort of like away from the NBA at at like the college level, where teams just are making fewer shots, like that becomes even more magnified. Um, So I I do think it's interesting. I mean, I don't don't know that that 100% directly answers your question, but like, I do think that there's something there in terms of, you know, guys that that do a lot of the dirty work that don't end up with the statistic, Um, I think, you know, get put on a tough, tough spot I mean it, it, the last thing that sort of comes to mind too is like um I don't remember if it was Zach Lowe or Kevin O'Connor or one of those dudes that was talking about Steven Adams and how like amazing of a teammate Steven Adams is because it's like he'll come into every game tussle around with your center like do all that like hand fighting and dirty work and tire himself out and he's fine with conceding every free re- freebie rebound to, to Russell Westbrook because you know he knows that the triple double stats mean so much to Russ and like you know he's not going to complain about that and he just seems like an amazing teammate and and you know I think I think that's kind of similar to, to Ed Davis in that way too
1: I I think this I think this ties into a few things so first of all I think it's clear to all Nets fans that Brook Lopez is soft and that he's not a man and we're all glad that he's not on the team anymore because he couldn't grab So, I just wanted to say that.
0: I mean, he does have a girl's name, and his twin brother also has a girl's name. So, we should point that out.
1: Good riddance. Yeah, that was one of the worst things to deal with as a Nets fan. People continuously calling Brook Lopez soft when those of us that watched the game understood how much he cared about this franchise and how many things he did out there to win. And when he finally got some intelligent direction from the Kenny Atkinson and Sean Marks that are turning himself and morphing himself into a really, really valuable rim protector floor stretcher boxer router I, I i can rant about this for about 90 minutes but thank you for bringing that up i and i also want to point out about russell westbrook i think i'm one of the few people that actually loves russell westbrook he plays like i feel like i would play if i had nba skills he's going all out 100 percent, angry at everything would die for his teammates and i think there was an article written a while ago showing that when he does get a defensive rebound the break, they score a higher points per possession than when he doesn't. Now, is that justification for him hoarding and headhunting rebounds just to show that he's the first player to average triple double for a season? Probably not. But I think there was a little bit of offensive justification behind that strategy in general.
0: Yeah, and and to be clear, like I, I don't think that there's necessarily an issue with Russell, like, I don't think Russell Westford's being a bad teammate by, by grabbing that rebound from Stephen Adams. I think it more just illustrates, kind of to your point, like Stephen Adams isn't a worse player for not grabbing it, and Russell Westbrook's not necessarily a better player because he happens to get to a double-digit counting stat in that particular statistical category.
1: Yeah, totally agree. And teams need players like that because if you have just one guy that's sacrificing for the good of the team and everybody knows it, that really permeates team culture and you can see it with teams like the thunder and teams like the nets and this also ties into that bill simmons adam silver interview from recently when silver was saying they've had a tough time attracting the 18 to 34 year old bracket especially when it comes to watching the games live on tv and not illegally streaming them or using some sort of non-NBA approved app. I think if they started catering a bit more to some of these deeper, more intelligent statistics, that's what our generation wants to see and hear. Yes, points per game are great. How many field goals they got out of the ones that they shot are awesome. Free throws, that stuff is awesome. But giving us a little bit more than we can get simply by looking up a quick box score um, or going to ESPN.com or even watching the games, going somewhere behind by beyond the eye test, I think it'd be a good way to connect to that age bracket. Case in point, Chris Snoop Garofalo, my father's favorite NBA player right now is DeAndre Popcorn Stats Jordan. So I think that speaks to the generational gap that Adam Silver is trying to fill.
0: So that's fascinating. And I think given that uh, with the news that, you know, Amazon is becoming a uh, either buying or becoming a significant investor in, in the Yes Network, uh, I think we should tab that one Table it and parking lot it for a future podcast uh, on I think sports because I don't know if you've seen the um, I forget the name of the company that's working with the Clippers that provides like the augmented reality uh, NBA games where you get like stats above the players' heads and it looks like they're in a video game, um, but it's coming and it looks crazy and I think there's a there's a ton to talk about there but I want to go back for a second. Um, to what we were talking about before with Brooke Lopez, because I, I have a it's something that you and I have talked about a lot, and I have a couple questions for you. So please so so I think Brooke Lopez factors in a lot of my thinking on this. and I think in particular sort of that dichotomy between the boxing out as one skill and the going and getting the ball as another skill. I mean, Brooke Lopez happened to play next to two, Fantastic rebounders in Chris Humphreys and Reggie Evans here. Um, I would say that both of them are probably more particularly more skilled at going and getting the ball than uh, Brooke Lopez was. But do you feel like his boxing out contributed to their success?
1: I absolutely feel like that. Look at what Reggie Evans and Chris Humphreys have done since departing the Nets. So, and what what I mean by that is absolutely nothing. They've done nothing, Carl.
0: That is fair. So, agree. Follow-up. Do you feel like Brooke Lopez is boxing out, got Chris Humphreys Kim Kardashian? Because he has yeah. no other discernible NBA skill besides rebounding, and he's got Brooke plowing the lane for him. Are you asking and I mean me? that not metaphorically. I mean that quite literally about boxing out <laughs> on the court. Keep the mind out of the gutter.
1: You, are, are, are you asking me if Brook Lopez's ass got Chris Humphrey's ass?
0: Yes, that is what I'm asking you.
1: Uh, yes, <laughs> I, 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 think, I think that it did. So, I, he, got a, he got a ton of national attention, athletically because of the stats he put up next to brooke lopez he's done nothing since he's left the nets so it would I, be nothing without brooke carl nothing. so
0: so i think that's fair but i think you know as we've just done the entire podcast as, as a as an appreciation of rebounding i i can't help but notice that and we, we talked about this a little bit the other day i don't think that there is a family that has patronized the skill of rebounding more than the kardashians because uh, as we mentioned, you know, Kim obviously married to Chris Humphreys. Uh, Chloe, uh, obviously famously dated and recently broke up with Tristan Thompson. Um, Lamar Odom uh, was also uh, Chloe's boyfriend for a little while. Uh, between them, all three of them have a defensive rebound percentage over 20% for their career. Chris Humphreys at 24.3, Tristan Thompson at 23.2, Lamar Odom at 219 Um Tristan Thompson also with an absurd 13.5 offensive rebound percentage. So so that's pretty incredible. And, you know, Brett, as our resident Kardashian expert, any any additional thoughts there?
1: Well, I, I would say that not only are the players that Kardashians dated uh, genetically built to attract rebounds with their derrières, but so are the Kardashians themselves. So I, I really feel like there's got to be some sort of – animal instinct attraction there you know where hey listen i was physiologically built to rebound so were you let's get together
0: i agree with that so so i think we should probably unspool this thread a little bit more but first i think i'm going to call you out and put you on blast here as our kardashian expert because you clearly missed that if we're going to talk about the kardashian clans being appreciators of rebounds we should probably you know expand that circle to the full Kardashian-Jenner family, which means that uh, we should call Kendall into the mix as well, who is currently dating Ben Simmons, who despite being a point guard has a 20.3 defensive rebound percentage, and previously dated Blake Griffin, who has a 21.9 defensive rebound percentage. So between the three of them, they have fielded uh, a five-man roster consisting of entirely power forwards. I think you, you have Ben Simmons running point Blake Griffin, I think, is your two guard. Uh, Lamar Odom is probably, I don't know, Odom or Humphreys is your three, and the other one's the four, and then Tristan Thompson is probably your center. So can anybody match that? So, Brett, I did some research, and I'll let you be the judge so my first thought was to go to basketball wives um so uh, gloria govan who you may remember from that show or um from the time that uh matt barnes drove the entire length of california to try to beat up Derek fisher uh, who was dating her after the two of them got divorced um so so she's got uh you know Derek fisher and matt barnes uh Matt Barnes putting up a pedestrian 16.4 on the defensive glass and uh, Derek Fisher paltry 7.6. So out of the running and you know her sister Laura uh, dated Gilbert arenas 10.2 defensive rebound. So that's that's one grouping I could think of Um, so my next thought was uh, okay, so let's look at um, Bethany Gerber who is currently uh, dating I believe i spent so much time on fabwags.com researching this that i I can't imagine what horrible horrible malware my computer is going to be affected with but um so deandre according to fabwags.com deandre jordan is currently dating bethany gerber deandre jordan has a 29.8 career defensive rebound percentage which is good for like number number like five or six all time um, in the ABA and NBA combined, um, so if you look at NBA and ABA combined defensive rebound percentage, number one is Andre Drummond. Number two is this dude Sven Sven S W E N Nater N A T E R. I'm assuming it's a Sven Nater. Sven Gaffani, who who played on UCLA with Bill uh, with uh, Bill Walton. So maybe there was some some campus co-ed that, that could get in this mix here with the two of them. I don't know. Um, Dwight Howard, who I don't think is, well, I'm not touching Dwight Howard's dating habits. Uh, <laughs> Dennis Rodman, who I'll come back to in a second, Kevin Love, who I couldn't find uh, like his girlfriend dating anybody else, Reggie Evans, who I think is like happily married and just fishes all the time, Demarcus Cousins, uh, I didn't research much, uh, Marcus Camby, and then Nikola Vucevic uh, is down there, and I'll, I'll get back to him in a second. So, okay, so again, looking for these people, so Bethany Gerber dated. DeAndre Jordan also dated Blake Griffin. So she's merits consideration. Um, So my next thought was, okay, Dennis Rodman, perhaps the greatest rebounder of all time. Anybody that he dated that dated another NBA player should be on the list. I went through the list of people that Dennis Rodman dated. Wild. Uh, (laughs) Didn't really find a good candidate. My best option was Carmen Electra if you wanted to make some sort of a joke that Dave Navarro Uh, is like the rebound guitarist of Red Hot Chili Peppers. I choose not to. Uh, I will say, separately, that did send me down a wormhole because Dennis Rodman dated Madonna, and the list of people that Madonna has dated is like a real cross-section of America. Uh, You've got like Warren Beatty, A-Rod, Jean-Michel Basquiat, uh, Michael Jackson... Um, like all kinds of people on that list. That is a different that that, that can be for the current affairs podcast on the Pulse Network. Um, so, my next thing, and I, I was really excited because I, I figured I'd I figure this out. So, first of all, I was super surprised that Nikola Vucevic was on that list of, of high defensive rebound percentages. And you have to bear with me because I have always confused Nikola Vucevic and Sasha Vujicic like for their entire existences. So, I found out that Nikola Vucevic was is married to uh Sasha Pavlovich's sister. And that was good because like not only do I confuse the two of them, um they're, you know, I I figured we could get the whole group together. But it turns out that Sasha Pavlovich is also not Sasha Vujicic. And Sasha Vujicic, uh, despite t- dating Maria Sharapova, she never dated any other basketball players. So that was a dead end. So the last thing that I thought, and, and maybe this does merit some consideration, would be the Candace Parker, Sheldon Williams uh, household. Uh, Candace Parker uh, with a 26.1 defensive rebound percentage, uh, out-rebounding uh, her better half, or her worse half, I guess, Sheldon, the landlord Williams only 21.9. So this is a long way of saying that I think the Kardashians win. Brett, what do you think?
1: Well, first of all, this is the type of analysis that our viewers have come to expect from us. Guys, remember, Sasha Pavlovich is not Sasha Vujicic, the machine you heard it here And
0: first. so listen, not only is Sasha Pavlovich, I want to reiterate, not only is Sasha Pavlovich not Sasha Vujicic, Sasha Vujicic is not Nikola Vucevic.
1: This is like the reverse transitive property.
0: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So many soft J's.
1: Uh, The landlord, he no longer owns the paint. Poor Sheldon Williams.
0: I think they're number two on this list, though. Uh,
1: I think combined they have to be. I think the cherry on top that seals it for the Kardashians is Kim Kardashian dating Kanye West on the rebound.
0: That's true. On the rebound from Chris Humphries, who is on the rebound from... Reggie Bush, who was on the rebound from Ray J.
1: And if you want to think about it this way, she's also great at steals. She was texting Kanye when he was dating Amber Rose. So they're really just a great hustle
0: defensive stats all around family. Killing the hustle stats. And ultimately, Brett, I think I'm going to steal your line, but I think it makes sense because butts. Rebounding. And I think that just about wraps things up. So hey, if you like what you heard or you're confused, shoot us uh, an email uh, netspulse at gmail dot com or hit us up on Twitter nets underscore pauls at, well at nets underscore pauls I guess uh, on on Twitter uh, drop us a line find us in iTunes find us in Spotify wherever you get your podcasts Stitcher and uh, thanks we'll we'll catch you soon
1: yeah I think it's time we pull the plug on this one or. Uh... Put the plug in
0: it.